morning, Four Corners. It's a blessing to worship the Lord together today. Even if it is kind of messy outside and you have to swim in the front door, it's a blessing to be here with all of you. Uh, in the power of Christ's resurrection, we will be like him and we will see him as he is. I hope that this truth that we just sung, that we that we we have sung it with our minds, with our hearts, and that we really do believe that. That Christ is risen. Every day is lived in the shadow of Easter. And that out of Christ's resurrection, we have a certain and fixed hope that we too one day will be raised in his glorious likeness. The English preacher, Roland Hill, once entered the home of one of his congregations. And he saw a child on a rocking horse. He remarked, Dear me, how wondrously like some Christians. There is motion, but no progress. Motion, but no progress. We could maybe tone down those lights just a little bit. And maybe that's how you feel. Motion, but no progress. Maybe that is how you feel about your own Christian life. As you come here this morning, maybe there is for you a kind of stagnation that has set in, or maybe a, a busyness that has led only to frustration. So either your Christian life is just kind of a, like a pond that's not moving, or it's something that is moving quite a bit, like this this child on a rocking horse, but it doesn't seem to be moving anywhere. Maybe there's a lot going on on the inside. Maybe even a lot of anxiety about your Christian life. Maybe there's a lot going on on the outside. But either way, whether it's inward or outward motion, it just does not seem to be going anywhere. One thing that we've repeatedly seen is that the Sermon on the Mount is convicting. As Ken prayed just a little while ago, we, we are constantly bombarded. There really is an avalanche of conviction that comes upon us when we read the Sermon on the Mount. If you think this happens when you read the Ten Commandments, how much more that great, full explication of the Ten Commandments that we find by the Lord Jesus, really, in the Sermon on the Mount, that he puts before us God's perfect standard for human beings. God's perfect standard standard for those of us who bear the name of Jesus, who are Christians. And so it's probably the case that as you have gone through the Sermon on the Mount, I know it's been the case for me personally, I'm sure it's been the case for all of us, that as we've gone through the Sermon on the Mount, we really have experienced somewhat of an avalanche of conviction. And maybe this has been the case for you repeatedly, or maybe one or two times in particular, and you feel a little confused or uncertain about what to do next. So here you are, you've encountered all of this weighty truth from the Sermon on the Mount, you've seen God's perfect standard, you've seen the, the character of Jesus and the characteristics of his disciples held up before your eyes, and the Holy Spirit has done his surgical work in you, where he has come alongside in the preaching of the word, in the engaging uh, of the, with the word in gospel community group, and he has made very clear to you that this or that or this or that aspect of your, of your Christian life or of your life is not in accordance with 
God's will. So what do you do? You maybe are just spinning your wheels. Jesus has given us much to consider. He has given us much to do and much not to do. And as we looked at last week, do not judge. Very clear. Right before that, do not worry. Jesus has put much upon us in terms of expectations. And let me say this. Jesus has very high expectations of his people. Do you you think in those terms as a Christian? I think that's probably the first thing to consider. Do you really believe that Jesus has high expectations of his people? So much of our Christian living is lethargic, slothful. Perhaps we take our own standards and put them up, and they're a lot easier to keep rather than Jesus's. Jesus has high expectations for his people because he lives in his people. The title for the sermon today is A New Start, Part 1. Today we come to a passage that offers us an opportunity, I think, to hit the reset button. And this comes at a great time. As we get towards the end of the Sermon on the Mount, we've now had much to consider This really is an opportunity to hit the reset button. When I was a kid, there was growing up in the church, there was a a constant there was an idea that was constantly put before me, whether it was at, at camps or youth camps or just in church in general, it was this idea of rededicating your life to Jesus. And on the one hand, it was kind of problematic because the idea is you sort of stumble through the Christian life. From you know, one event to the next, and every event you come up, you rededicate your life to Jesus. So I probably re- rededicated my life to Jesus maybe 10 or 15 times. Maybe many more than that growing up as a kid and as a teenager. Many rededications. So on the one hand, it's kind of problematic, but on the other hand, there is some truth to it in that every single day, and in particular periods of the Christian life, there really is the strong call to draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. To redevote ourselves to this God. To rededicate ourselves truly and concretely to the Christian life. In other words, to hit the reset button. And I think as a church, and as individuals, there is no better time than to do that as we go through the Sermon on the Mount. But I think today we get a particular opportunity to do that. To start the Christian life again. To restart the Christian life now and with much confidence. So I'm not just saying that we go back and hit the reset button and we start over, sort of blank slate, we move forward from today. I'm saying that we start over, we move forward from today but with great assurance and great confidence. Because without that, we just start over and start over and start over and start over. So I think as we anticipate coming up on the new year in the middle here or at the beginning here of October, I think we're already being called right here by Jesus to hit the reset button, to start over, and to start over with great confidence. So wherever you are, What we're going to look at today is the answer for moving forward. This is it. It's not an answer. It is the answer for moving forward. 
So let's go to Matthew chapter 7. We'll be looking at verses 7 to 11. Let me go ahead and get us all to stand for the reading of God's Word. Matthew 7, verses 7 to 11. Wherever you're at today, this is Jesus' fresh start. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. For which of you, which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a serpent. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? Let's pray now with confidence to ask the Lord to bless our time, and that he will, in fact, give each of us fresh start. Our Father in heaven, may you be exalted in our service today, as you already have been through singing and prayer and scripture reading. Thank you for your great name, Father, as we behold our God. We recognize that that is the, that is the chief end of man. We would glorify you, behold you in your manifold perfections, and that we would enjoy you as the all-satisfying God. Father, we pray that you will be held up in that way in every single heart gathered in this room today. We pray that you will be held up in that way back in the children's space as the kids worship and learn God, would they, would they learn about you and turn to you? We pray if there's anyone here today among us who is unconverted, unsaved, lost in sin, Father, would you change their heart? Would you convert sinners to saints, to holy ones, to children, to disciples? Father, would you do your work today, we ask? Would you... Would your kingdom come here, even now, in four corners, in this moment? Father, we pray that you will provide each of us with attentive minds and open hearts and searching eyes as we consider our own sin and as we consider your grace and your mercy supplied for us, for sinners like us. Father, we pray that you will bring to mind those things that we need to confess and repent of. We pray for your of our sins. And we ask today, Father, that you will protect us from the evil one. We know as we gather here this morning to worship that he is working. And we pray that his purposes will be thwarted, that he will not be able to penetrate our hearts and our minds with his temptations now. Would you lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Help us now, we pray, Father, to worship you in spirit and truth. Help us now to Apply your word to our hearts to hear it and to 
do it, would your spirit do his will, we ask. In Jesus' name. So this new start, this path forward, this way forward for the Christian can be characterized, I think, by a number of things. And today in part one, next week we're going to finish looking at this passage, verses 7 to 11. But today in part one, we're going to look at three of those things. We'll go ahead and put that slide up. Three of those. This way is characterized, I think, this path forward, this way forward for us if we are going to start freshly today in response to everything we've encountered so far, and particularly in response to this passage. I think we have to consider that this way forward is the only way forward. It is the sure or certain path forward. And thirdly, it is the persistent way. It is the only way, the sure way, and the persistent way. And I think we get all of these from verses 7 and 8, which is what we're going to look at today, and we're going to come back next week and look at verses 9 to 11. So the only way, the sure way, and the persistent way, let's look first at the only way. Last week, we approached a very difficult passage. You know, uh, some have, have said that verses 1 to 5 of chapter 7, our one distinct passage in verse 6, is an entirely unrelated passage. That you just have this, this, this random saying of Jesus stuck in here in chapter 7 in the Sermon on the Mount. And in fact, there's a lot of passages in the Sermon, of the, on the Sermon on the Mount that have been treated that way by some commentators. But I think when you dig a little deeper, you see how verse 6 that we looked at last week relates to those first five verses. On the one hand, we are told that we must not be critical and judgmental of others. That's what we learn in verses 1 to 5 of chapter 7, especially our brothers and sisters in Christ. And on the other hand, we are told that we must be discriminating and discerning even as we share the gospel. Even as we share the gospel of God's free grace in Christ, we must be discerning. And so last week the title of the sermon was Judging, because we saw in the first part that there is a kind of judgment that is altogether wrong, bad, sinful, against the Christian life, against loving one another, against Christ. It's one that is hypercritical and hypocritical and uncritical of one's own self. But we saw that there was a kind of judgment, a kind of discrimination and discernment as we relate to people in the world that is absolutely essential if we are to go out and I think be salt and light in the world, connecting it back to something that we encountered earlier. There will be some false teachers, apostates, and others who are so hardened or opposed to the gospel that it would be unwise to share God's truth with them. It would be like casting our pearls before angry wild boars. These antagonistic, perhaps false teachers or apostates, those who have already trampled under, underfoot the Son of God, as we read in Hebrews, or those who would seek to lead Christ's people astray, or those who are hardened in opposition to Christ. 
that it would be unwise and unfruitful to give them this truth, that it would be as though we are taking something holy and dragging it through the mud, that we are casting our pearls before swine, Jesus says. In those instances, which will probably be rare, we're not going to meet many people like this, we are told to go into all the world and preach the gospel. We are told to make Christ known to every person. We are told to make disciples of all nations, all kinds of debauched, pagan, heathen peoples, immersed in all forms of ungodliness and sin. So it will be rare, indeed, when we come upon those to whom we will not cast these pearls. But I think we get an example of this in Luke 9, 5. And wherever they do not receive you, this is what Jesus says to his apostles, wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. The sense here being that at that point, to proceed with these people is to cast pearls before swine. I think we have one illustration of not casting your pearls before pigs or swine in the early Christian martyr Polycarp. I don't know if you have heard of Polycarp in the 2nd century, very early Christian account of martyrdom. He's a very old man. He's a pastor of a church in Asia Minor, and he is brought forward to a stadium. He is arrested and brought into a stadium that is filled with an uproar of people screaming and just hungering for his blood so loud that nothing else could be heard simply because he was a Christian. He was taken into a stadium, and there he was brought before the proconsul, and he says that he will not revile Christ or swear by false gods. The proconsul tells him to swear by the fortune of Caesar. He says no. To revile Jesus Christ. He says no. Of course not. And to the proconsul, he says this. I am a Christian. If you wish to learn an account of Christianity, appoint a day and listen. And the proconsul replied, Persuade the people. Polycarp said, I think you deserve an account. For we are taught to render all due honor to rulers and authorities appointed by God insofar as it does us no harm. But as to those, I do not consider them worthy to hear a reasoned defense. In this state, in this situation, we have a stadium full of bloodthirsty pagans who have so staunchly rejected God that they wish to rip the life out of this man by feeding him to lions or burning him alive. And in this particular instance, with discernment and judgment called for in that moment, Polycarp says, to share the gospel with this stadium full of people would be to cast my pearls before swine. So the reason I spend so much time looking at what we looked at last week is because this leads us to the question, how do we rightly judge? After we read those six verses, those first six verses of Matthew 7, we're forced to ask the question, how do we rightly judge? 
And going back to the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, let's just ask these questions, or I think these questions have been put upon us since the beginning of our time in the Sermon on the Mount. How do we reflect Christ's character in the Beatitudes? How do we shine bright in a dark world for the glory of God? How do we act and function as salt and light in the world? How do we avoid lust, anger, retaliation, hatred of our enemies? How do we have a heart, righteousness, that surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees? Remember Jesus said that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no, by no way enter the kingdom of heaven. How do we avoid these things? How do we have these things? How do we avoid hypocrisy and a craving for the praise of men? How do we avoid constantly doing what we do for the Lord so that other people will see us and think well of us and praise us and pat us on the head or on the shoulder and say, you're such a good, strong, mature Christian, such a holy guy, such a holy lady? How do we avoid that? How do we cultivate a secret piety that trusts in the ever-seeing eyes of God? How do we pursue heavenly treasure instead of earthly treasure? How do we check our worldly ambition and love of money? How do we put people before things rather than putting things in our own interests and our own ambitions before other people? How? 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 How do we stop our ignorant and faithless worry? How do we seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness? And then back to last week again. How do we judge rightly? And maybe that's where you're at at this point. The Lord has kind of beat you up a little in a good, holy way. He has convicted you. He has cut you to the heart, as it says in Acts 2 when Peter preaches. He's done this work on you and in you, and maybe it was all of those things. So for you, it truly has been an avalanche. Maybe it's one or two in particular where as we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord has really burrowed down deep into your soul and said, this must go. Or this must come. How? How? How do we not just walk out of here Sunday after Sunday, gospel community group after gospel community group, and remain the same? No matter how many times we're Well, there's only one way. Only one. Look at verses 7 and 8. Matthew 7, 7 to 8. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Open. If your Christian life is motion, but no progress, going back to what we said at the very beginning, if you've been convicted at any point during the Sermon on the Mount, if you need a new start, there is only one way. Only one way way of prayer. And not just prayer in general, but the kind of prayer that Jesus puts before us here. Now, we've already spent quite a bit of time in prayer, 
You think, back to prayer? We're going back to prayer? Really? We spent all that time in prayer? Well, think about it this way. Prayer has been, has been there with us every step of the way through the Sermon on the Mount. Go back to chapter 5, verse 3. Just flip maybe one or two pages over in your Bible. Maybe three or four if you have one of those really large print Bibles. But just flip back over. Chapter 5, verse 3. What are we told there? An implicit, an implicit call to prayer. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What is the expression of poverty of spirit? Prayer. You can right now know how poor in spirit you are based on how much you pray. It is really that simple. Because poverty of spirit is a recognition of emptiness. It's a recognition of emptiness that then, in hungering and thirsting, says, I need to be filled. And so we pray that God would fill us. He would fill us up with his spirit. So we can know that at the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, everything we encounter, the gateway for all of it, for all of the Beatitudes, the starting point for all of the injunctions and all of the instructions and commands and do's and don'ts and heart dispositions that we've encountered all throughout the Sermon on the Mount, it all goes back to this one thing, being poor in spirit, which means essentially prayer. We are those who are in call out to be filled by God. Without it, we are empty and fruitless. We saw it at the beginning and then we saw it right in the middle. Chapter 6, we have all of that material on prayer. In fact, it's interesting that Jesus brings up prayer as he's talking about a larger topic. He's saying don't practice your righteousness before others to be seen by them. And he gives three examples. He talks about giving to the poor. And then he talks about praying. And then he talks about fasting. And he stops on the topic of prayer. And he goes on for a little so we see prayer applied at the very beginning. We see prayer as this massive tower in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. And then we come again in chapter 7, towards the end of the Sermon on the Mount, to this passage on prayer. We've seen how to pray, but now we need to understand that prayer is the only way forward. So I want to say this to you. No substitute will do. No matter how holy, no matter how rich, no matter how biblical, no substitute for prayer will do. So let me ask this question. What are you substituting for prayer? Now this can be answered in two different ways. It might be answered in this way. I am substituting for prayer all of these things that take up all my time. All of this busyness, the extra little bit of sleep, or the busyness that goes on maybe at the beginning of the day or at the end of the day, or Facebook, or listening to this podcast even, listening to this, or watching that, or spending time with this person, or spending time with that person. You may be able to fill in the blank with something like that, but here is the more subtle thing I think we need to see. You may even be replacing prayer 
with your Bible reading. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Reading of Scripture, reading of good books, are wonderful things. In fact, all prayer must rise up out of Scripture if we are to pray in accordance with God's will. But sometimes, our Bible reading goals, our Bible reading plans, our Bible reading charts, squish out prayer. Think about that. Even when we get all excited about living the Christian life and we decide we're going to read this much of the Scripture this day and this much of the Scripture that day, and we're going to spend this much, much time doing this and this much, much, this much time doing that. Even as we make these goals, the question is this, do we do that at the expense of prayer? Or do we let our Scripture reading itself be prayer? The Bible read without prayer, can become vanity. It can become knowledge that puffs up. But the Bible before us as a gateway to communion with the triune God, that is holy, godly, biblical Bible reading. So let me ask you this. Is your Bible reading plans, is your Bible reading goals, is your approach to divine things, squishing out prayer so that prayer plays a very tiny role in your Christian life. Don't let Bible reading replace prayer, but let it fuel prayer. Maybe we need to decide to read less. I want to hear this often. To read less and pray more. That brings us to the second thing that we're going to consider this morning, is that it is the sure way. Not only is it the only way, this way of prayer that Jesus lays before us, not only is it the only way forward for us as Christians, but it is the sure way. In our previous point, we looked at the context for Jesus' teaching on prayer in these verses. We, we had to consider the fact that as we come to verse 7, ask and it will be given to you, seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened to you that as we come to those verses, we have to situate them in their context. And in context, we've been given all of this teaching that is impossible to follow without prayer. I think we are meant to understand that. That the only way we're going to do anything that precedes this verse is by prayer. And now we turn to the content of these verses themselves. So verse 7 we have commands followed by results. Let me read it this way. Ask, and it will be given. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. Then in verse 8, the idea is essentially repeated for everyone. That's you. That is you. There is no circumstance in your life no particular thing that makes this unapplicable to your life. This is applicable to you, brother and sister in Christ. This is applicable to me. Everyone who is a Christian, we must add, who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. So here's what we need to see. 
This is the language of cause. So let me just ask this general question. How much attention do you give to the promises of God in Scripture? There's a lot of promises of God in Scripture. You can go everywhere and find the promises that should buttress our faith, should grow our faith and make us strong in the Lord. But in some ways, this promise is the gateway to all other promises. Or you can say this promise is, is the means by which we access all of God's other promises. This is the language of promise. Jesus is making you a promise, Christian. He is promising to do something. So what exactly is Jesus promising us here? I think the parallel passage in Luke 11 helps us. You don't have to turn there, but in Luke chapter 11, verse 13, it says this toward the end of the passage. Uh, what we have here at the end in verse 11 reads in this way in Luke. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? You ever encountered this difference here? So when you read it in Matthew, it says, How much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? And in Luke, it says, How much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Parallel passages. Same idea, same things being taught. In fact, instead of the fish and the serpent, in Luke he has an egg and a scorpion. And apparently, I read this week, that the larger scorpions could kind of roll up or pull up when they sleep and look like an egg. Just a little tidbit there. But Matthew and Luke's text, these are parallel accounts. What that tells us is that when we read Matthew's text, Luke's text helps us to understand what Jesus is saying. How much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? So when we come to God, listen to this, Christian. When we come to God for spiritual growth, for fruits and graces of the Holy Spirit, that we know from Scripture are in accordance with His will, when we come to God for help, asking Him, Father, Help me live this Sermon on the Mount. Help me manifest these Beatitudes. Help me not judge, not retaliate, not lust in my heart, not be angry with my neighbor, not show off and pretend in pretense and performance so as to be praised by other people rather than trusting in your all-seeing eyes. When we come to God for help to live this out, promises to give it to us. That's an amazing thing. Have you ever thought about that? Uh, maybe. He promises, Jesus promises to provide it for us. 1 John 5, 14-15, which one of our elders, Ken, read earlier. I want to read it again to us. 1 John 5, 14-15, and this is the confidence that we have toward him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Okay? He hears us. We ask in accordance with his will. These are biblical prayers. Prayers guided by the Spirit. We know these are things he wants for us. He hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests we have asked of him. This is true. This is true. 
Do you believe that this is true? So simple questions for us. Three simple questions for us in response to this. One, do we ask? Do you ask God? Have you really asked God, God, take away my worry? I, I don't want to be a worrying person. Take it away. Work in my heart that I might so trust you that worry is not a part of my life anymore. We know that's God's will because Jesus said, do not worry. So it's clear that when we pray such a prayer, we are praying in accordance with his will. We know that. Father, I am a critical person. Forgive me. Help me. I don't want to be critical of everyone else in their problem. I don't want to always be thinking down on some person, reducing them to this particular thing that I don't like. Help me. Father, I have trouble with my eyes. I have trouble lusting after other people. Father, help me. Rip that out of my life. Promises to do these things. James 4, 2 is clear. You do not have because you do not ask. So ask, Christian. Ask God. Pursue Him. Seek Him. Knock at His door in heaven, and He will give it. He promises to do it. Ask. Do you ask? Do we have confidence in God's promise? James 1, 5-8, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. And God might give it to you. No, that is not what He says. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God and give generously to all without reproach, and it will be given you. It will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man unstable in all his ways. So the first question is, do you ask? And the second question is, do you have confidence in God's promise? Do you believe God and his word? you believe him? Now we're told in Romans 4 that it is in the very essence of faith to believe God's promise. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. That is the way we come into the Christian life, by the way. That's how we become believers, is that we trust in the promises of God in Christ. And he saves us by faith, for by grace you have been saved through faith. What kind of faith? The faith that Abraham modeled when God told him that his descendants would be as the stars of the heavens. And he believed God, and God counted to him his righteousness, and he kept on believing God's promises. And that's what every Christian is supposed to do, to keep on believing God's promises. Promises. Do you ask? Do you have confidence in God's promise? And then here's one that I think is very practical. Do you expect God to give? All those things I just mentioned. Maybe you're even a, a person who is so strongly inclined to one of the things we've mentioned. Worrying, judging, being angry, retaliating, lusting, whatever. Just, just all of those things. Maybe there's one that's so strong on you. Do you pray to God with an honest, true expectation that he's going to take it away? That he's going to bring reformation in your heart? That he is truly going to establish himself as king over that sin and crush it? 
we believe. We expect him to act. I'm going to read verses 9 to 11 very quickly. I want you to hear all of the giving language. Just listen to it. It's everywhere. Verses 9 to 11. I'll read them quickly. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask? He is a giving God. At the core, he is a giving, even more, Abba. He is a giving Father. So this kind of prayer that Jesus lays out for us is not just the only way forward for you, Christians. Wherever you're at, Wherever you're at, in, in maybe stagnation, motion without progress, wherever you are at, it is not just the only way forward. Please see this distinction. It is not just the only way forward. It is the sure way forward. It's not just the only means by which you will grow as a Christian. It is certain that you will grow. You will grow if this becomes your life. Without question. It will not fail. It will produce growth in your life. It will be effective. It is guaranteed and backed by the never lying lips of the Son of God. Who cannot lie? Who himself is the way, the truth, and the life. It's backed by his But let's look a little closer at these verses to see what Jesus is saying about this way of prayer. We need to understand what he's saying about this prayer. It's the only way to, to live this kind of Christian life. It's a certain way. It will be effective. We will start to grow if we hit the reset button today and say, this priority number one, priority number one, I don't care what else suffers. I don't care what else suffers. Priority number one. I will ask, I will seek, I will knock, and I will trust in the giving God. That's the only way forward. Sure way forward. I want us to also see that it is the persistent way. This is its quality. There are three clues that tell us that this kind of promise-filled praying is persistent, constant, and unending. First, we notice that the parallel passage in Luke comes immediately after Jesus' explicit call to persistence. So remember, we've got these parallel passages. We've got this teaching in Matthew, and we've got this teaching in Luke. Well, when you go to this teaching in Luke, right before these verses, right before this ask, seek, and knock, we get this. Which of you has a friend? Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, friend. Lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut. My children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence or persistence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. Now that is not meant to tell us anything about the character of God. God is not like that. We, we learned that from this passage. But what it does tell us 
is that persistence is in the background to Jesus' teaching on asking, seeking, and knocking, because it goes immediately from that passage. I'll read the last bit again. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will not seek and you will find not and it will be open to you. So that tells us that when Jesus teaches this portion, ask, seek, and knock, that persistence is in the background to what Jesus has in mind. But that's only one clue. The second clue is in our passage itself, here in Matthew. We notice something about these verbs. These verbs in the original Greek are ask, seek, and knock, and they're present imperatives, which can be rendered keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. We could render, we could translate these verbs in that way. So we know from Luke that persistence is in view because of the context and the parallel passage. And we know here from these verbs, the present imperative, that they need to keep on doing something continually and constantly. And third, with these verbs, we also see an increasing level of intensity or action. So think about it. We ask for something. We seek for something. And then we knock to have that very thing. There is kind of an increasing level of intensity here, of exercise, of action on our part. We are, we are asking, we are seeking, and then we are knocking. So here's my point. The promise that we have in this passage is connected to prayer, but not just loosely defined. So we're not talking today about you walking out of here and saying, okay, God promises to grow my Christian life. He promises to give me the Holy Spirit, to fill me with the Holy Spirit, to give me spiritual graces if I pray. And so we just say, well, what's the takeaway? I'm going to pray. It's not just that. It's not just that. This promise-filled praying is not loosely defined as prayer, but it is persistent prayer. Constant, unending, undying, continual praying. Now, this means that it is not something else. It is not a flash of excitement, resolve, or emotion. Now think about that for a moment. How much of our Christian lives are based merely, sometimes even exclusively, on a flash of divine life? We have these moments with God where we just feel like the, the, the whole world has been eclipsed by Christ. He becomes in that moment our great treasure. He becomes in that moment the one thing that we desire above all else. It is this flash of excitement, resolve, or tears. One of the things that I saw in my life very frequently when this happened was my first year of seminary. We had to go to chapel three days a week. We had to go to chapel three days a week. Now, I loved it. I'm trying to be pious, but I did. I did enjoy it. It was an important part of the first year of my seminary. But one of the things that happened to me so many times as I would sit in chapel and hear all of these, these wonderful sermons from God's Word, these expositions of Scripture, three times a week, week in and week out, is I would very frequently walk out of that chapel with tears in my eyes, with a heavy heart, with a desire to press on with great 
vigor for Christ, and then it would just kind of dissipate as I would go to the to the, to the library and start working on a paper I had to do. Or as I would go and, and start reading or doing this, by the end of the day, it was gone. It was gone. A flash of glorious light, excitement, resolve, tears, emotional movement, and then nothing. And nothing. It's momentary flash. Not momentary prayer that is quickly forgotten or abandoned, but it keeps on asking, seeking, knocking, until the Father gives what it is we ask for, because he promises to do so. So here is something that I want you to consider. This is very important. How much giving up is there in your Christian life? How much giving up? You wonder why, why you're still doing the same thing you were doing 10 years ago. You look at your life and you see all these streams of bad habits, ungodly habits, things that you've prayed about in the past, and you say, man, I sure wish that was gone from my life. I sure wish I was growing. It doesn't seem like I've grown at all in the last five years. It doesn't seem like I've grown at all in the last year or two. This is the answer. Jesus makes that clear. Persistent prayer. And the Father will answer. Maybe we just need to stop giving up. And keep keeping on in prayer to our loving Father. He will give what we need. We ask, then we give up, then we get frustrated and mad at God. Does that make any sense? We do that all the time. We ask in something, and then we just stop. We just stop. And then, you know, we, we start to realize, you know, this is still, still an issue for me. This is still something I'm struggling with. You know, come on, God. Why aren't you doing your job? That's what we do. And all the while, the Lord Jesus speaks to us from his word, from his word, not in its subjective experience, but from his word in Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 to 11. And he says, keep on asking me. I am a gracious father. I am a good father. I will provide what you need. I will make you holy. I will make you like myself. Otherwise, Jesus' comments for us to be perfect like the Heavenly Father would be meaningless. Be holy for I am holy. That would be meaningless. Love as I love. That would be meaningless. Christ wants to manifest his very character in every single Christian life. And the means by which we access that, we are told here, is persistent. <laughs> so how much consistency and follow-up in our prayers for spiritual growth. How much of that is there? We're praying for the salvation of other people. We're praying for their growth in Christ. Praying for our children to come to the Lord. How much persistence, constancy before the throne of God. Not lazy prayer. Constant. That is what Jesus wants from us. A new start can only begin and must begin with persistent prayer. It is the only way, and it is the sure way. You can bang on it every single time. Because the Lord is truth. 
So is your Christian life like a child on a rocking horse? If your answer to that question, which I think in part all of us feel that way a lot, if your Christian life is motion but no progress, here's the answer. It is that simple. Ask, it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks, finds. To the one who knocks, it will be opened. Some of us just need to sit down and think about those areas of our lives. And I mean this literally. Get a piece of paper. Think about those areas of your life where there is much struggle, much ungodliness even. Those bad habits, those things that you know you do, that, that the Sermon Mount has spoken against, that Christ himself, your Lord, my Lord, has said, no, write those things down and commit yourself to a time, at least one time every day, where you consistently bring those to the throne of God. Day after day after day after day after day. See the Lord work. And maybe you need to pray for persistence. <laughs> That's the incredible thing. Is we don't even have persistence. We're empty of that. So we even have to go to God and ask for that. And you know what's amazing is God, he, he honors even our most feeble attempts at pursuing him. When he says, draw near to God, he will draw near to you. Who really draws near to God? We are so imperfect in our motives. We are so lazy in our movement and our motivations. We, we never really do it purely, but God is so good. He is so kind and merciful to us. As we said earlier, his mercy covers over all of our sins. So begin by praying for persistence. And then in that persistence, wage war with all perseverance. In all prayer and supplication, as the Apostle Paul says, against all vice and all sin and all ungodliness, wherever it may be lives. Next week we will finish this passage by discussing the basis for this asking, seeking, and knocking as we come to verses 9 to 11. But just as we finish, a new start. The path forward, the way forward, it's the only way, the sure way, and the persistent way. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your word. And Father, we aim this morning to take you at your word. Father, help us to believe in prayer. And Father, I know that so often we pray with such little faith. The reason we don't pray is because we maybe deep down in our hearts don't really believe it matters. We see people who don't pray prosper. And sometimes we pray and we think, why, God, why, why? Father, help us heed the words of our Lord here. And to pray continually, persistently. May this mark every life in Four Corners Church. May this mark everything about our church. Would you give us wisdom as a church as to how we can become more of a praying church? Father, that we would believe your word, believe your Son, Ask and seek and knock and believe that it 
will be open, that you will respond, that you will answer us, and that you will give us the Holy Spirit. Good things. Blessed things. Thank you, Father, would these words stay on our hearts this week and bring transformation. We ask in Jesus' name.